So it literally, you know, now the extension service is in, there's access to it in every state. Uh, in Kentucky, there's an office in every county. Uh, there are 3,000 counties, I think, uh, county offices across the country. Um, and it's a way for, it's literally a portal for the higher, for the, the land-grant university throughout every 50, all 50 states uh, in America. I probably will get kicked out of the forage club when I tell you this, but it, I backed into it. Um, I, I love cattle. I love cattle, but I, I don't have the skills. I mean, I worked with people who did, and it was like it was like being in a room of people talking a different language, and it was more than the talk. They could see things and knew things I just, you know, I wasn't going to get, and I wanted to be cl as close to it as I could. Uh, and forages was 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 close, and so I, it just kind of started on that path. But over over the you know the years, I have developed an extreme appreciation for just how important it is uh, and how ubiquitous they are to things we consider to be just natural and good. You know, that that is just one of my passions. And I I did not always understand it. I mean, early on, I thought, you know, my job is to be an expert and to go out and, and solve people's problems in a sense. Uh, I was dangerous when I first started because I couldn't solve anybody's problems. Uh, I probably caused as many as I as I as I as I helped. But one of the things I learned early on was that you are a lot smarter if you listen a lot more than you talk. Uh, and that is what I think land-grant universities need to do better. And when we have made great advances, it's because we've listened to people and we take that back and we say, okay, let's work on that. And, I, and it, 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 it's in that same, you know, kind of um, thought or circle as this idea of when we've got an answer and nobody's doing it, you know then you, you better ask why. I think people in my role have got to be conversant on many levels about how agriculture fits into uh, the, the whole world. I was, I was on MARTA in Atlanta from the airport to a downtown hotel, and I think I must have had something that said agriculture on it. And this nurse, educated lady, said, why is it that we don't we have we don't have non-GMO bread in America? You know, they don't have GMO bread in Europe and they don't have blank problem. And I'm thinking, I don't know. Bread's not my thing. Wheat's not my thing. Well, it turns out we don't there is no GMO bread, you know. But she didn't know. You know, she had read something. And and I mean, this is an educated, articulate lady. Uh, and, and yet I was unable to at least offer up a little bit of help to her and reassure her that, no, our bread's a whole lot like their bread. And, you know, perhaps we need to look further at whatever it is you think is going on. Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. 
Today, I am very pleased to be joined by an academic brother of mine, uh, Dr. Jimmy Henning from the University of Kentucky, uh, a place that we both spent a little time at. He spent a lot more time there than I have. Um, and maybe we can get into some of that as we go along. Uh, thanks for coming, Jimmy. My pleasure. In fact, we spent time at another university together, um, University of Georgia, before we both moved up to University of Kentucky. So there's a fair background there. Yes. Uh, you might know some backstories of the Sod Father that I may or may not want told, but that's for later. They may or may not be true if I tell them so. There you go. Well, yeah, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story now. Um, so Jimmy is an extension professor and extension forage specialist in the Department of Plant and Soil Science at the University of Kentucky. All right, already there's some things that we probably need to define for people that haven't been exposed to one, land-grant universities, to the Cooperative Extension Service. So could you um, give us a little background on those two, please? You know, the, the history of the land-grant university is personal to me because it, uh, first of all, is a uniquely American construct. Uh, born out of legislation in 1862, the middle of the Civil War, uh, it was designed to give people uh, all across America, but especially targeted at, at um, rural, uh, generally, uh, you know, the lower income parts of America, access to higher education. Prior to then, formally higher education was all in private schools and certainly for those that had resources. So uh, in 1862, it, it was an idea who'd been around in a, a while. The federal government passed legislation where they gave away land, land grants, uh, in lieu of cash, which they didn't have much of, uh, and to support states that would uh, set up a public university. And, uh, I mean, Kentucky did, Georgia did, and interestingly enough, Georgia had done something similar on their own in the 1700s, late 1700s. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's access to higher education for people of my background. In fact, I mean, my family farm, uh, where my parents still live, is in the, land, uh, the Dust Bowl era of, area of Oklahoma. And, you know, longer story than we have time for, but my dad was the first in his family to go to college, and he went to college at an A&M school, an agricultural and mechanical school. Uh, you know, built or born or constructed from that that model of giving uh, rural families, rural kids, access to higher ed, uh, and you know, led to 17 people getting college degrees that wouldn't have ordinarily. So anyway, it's a it's a access a higher education access. The you know, it, as that developed, it became clear that we needed answers to some very basic questions. And they, there was legislation passed 25 years later to set up the Ag Experiment Stations, something we or have a complete uh, you know, comfort with now, the idea that we do research uh, was set up formally then. And it didn't take long, and, and you'll probably laugh along with me, that uh, 
you know, people were not doing the things that they had learned in, or in, at, the, at the Ag Experiment Station for good reason. I mean, it, it's a financial risk at the time. Uh, and so the experiment, the extension service was born in uh, 1914. Uh, and it, it, is, it has always been a problem-solving uh, institution. It started out with, uh, of all things, the boll weevil problem in Texas. Uh, and it has gone on to to encompass um, home economics, which is is uh, a word that has gone out of use. But certainly, food safety is not gone out of of concern, uh, and economics of of a home uh, not gone out of concern. Um, that's still relevant, and it also has been. Uh, it's also fostered the the 4-H clubs of America, which is one of the largest youth development organizations uh, in the country. So it literally, you know, now the extension service is in, there's access to it in every state. Uh, in Kentucky, there's an office in every county. Uh, there are 3,000 counties, I think, uh, county offices across the country. Um, and it's a way for, it's literally a portal for the higher, for the, the land-grant university throughout every 50, all 50 states uh, in America. So anyone has, as you said, access to this service, regardless of where they are through their um, local office. It may not be in every county, but sometimes counties have been um, joined together for for service um, over the years. Um, which I just think is a remarkable, well, some things uh, in Oregon, we have something called Master Gardener, for example. Um, So people who are interested in, you know, raising vegetable gardens or uh, ornamentals or fruit trees or small fruits can get trained and then even become trainers for others. Uh, That model has been used train the trainer kind of thing. And and a similar one for livestock too. And we have a program in small farms um, in Oregon. And I don't know how much beyond Oregon those sorts of programs extend. Master Gardeners is uh, nationwide. I mean, it is the signature train the trainer program. Uh, and, and probably more, as many people know about Master Gardeners as they know about extension. Huh. Okay. Um, so that would be one. And then, of course, um, I, I know of people, you know, some kind of strange foliar condition shows up on, you know, roses or fruit or whatever, and people take those for identification. And it becomes a source of information for people that... Um, I mean, you can go to a garden store and get the same thing, but with extension, they're not selling you a product for it. They may give you information on how to control it, and then you can make your decision. And at the garden store, you're, you know, you're, the talent level is usually one deep. You know, you can access an extension office, and you may be able, or you're going to hit a national network that you can get that picture in front of somebody in a state who is an expert or in <clears throat> the network of experts across the country. Uh, and, you know, it, if there's anything good that it will come out of this COVID complication, 
uh, it is the fact that we have learned a whole lot about how to communicate without ever leaving home. Mm -hmm. Technology has been available. We haven't necessarily been early adopters, I think is a phrase I learned in extension. Um, So you co-founded something called Kentucky Grazing Schools. Um, Cattle don't need to be taught how to graze. So what's that about? Yeah, you know, that's a that's an interesting thought about who's teaching who here. Um, but uh, actually, we I stole the idea or I borrowed it. Or Jimmy, I, Jimmy, let me stop you right there. You didn't steal it. Now, no. we're taught plagiarism is bad, right? Right. Okay. But, but I'm going to quote my source. You, you leveraged it. See, oh. leveraging is good. So See, you okay. leverage I, the idea. I, I had the, the, well, I would say uh, unique and wonderful pleasure of working with one of the most talented communicators I have ever known in, in when I was at the University of Missouri. In fact, a whole bevy of amazing people there. Uh, but one of them, those was Jim Garrish. Jim was the director of a station in north central Missouri called the Forage Systems Research Center. Uh, and then this is this is how, you know, off the beaten track it was. It was not even on a paved road. You know, and so it literally kind of reflected this the the position probably that forage systems played across the the whole agricultural landscape. You know, it we those kinds of people didn't buy tractors, a lot of them. Uh, and you know, but Jim was up there and had a, had a, an incredible mind and then worked incredibly hard. And one of the things that he did was to set up a three day school where uh, the cows taught us how to, how to graze, you know, or his grazing school. And it was from his personal experience. And of course, Jim, as you know, is a UK grad as well. So an academic brother. Um, and it, it was just remarkable. And over the course of uh, Jim's tenure there at the station, he's now a private consultant and, and does a magnificent job. Um, he had people from all over the world that, had, that went to that place in north central Missouri, not even on a paved road, uh, and went there, you know, leveraged the idea, went back to Kentucky in 1996 and started that and, and have been doing that ever since. And now we do two a year here. And and similar sorts of programs have been leveraged to other parts of the country where I know that there's uh, one that takes place out of Idaho, uh, I think, uh, runs one, which is where Jim lives now. Uh, but I think it's run through Extension or another, um, or maybe NRCS and Extension together kind of doing that work. So. I guess a critical point for people is these are resources that are available. There may be a cost for attending, but it in no way covers the cost of actually doing some of these things. Uh, A lot of these people are working for places like the National uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is under USDA, um, or they work for the Extension Service, or they work out of the land-grant universities. Um, so these are things that everybody needs to know are available and that they can go to. Um, and I think another one that I've seen recently popping up, uh, North Carolina state has one called amazing grazing. 
Mm-hmm. I think um, Arkansas has one that I think is what 300 days of grazing. Um, the, there are a couple others in different states, so people um, could and and you don't have to be in agriculture to take advantage of these things. Any one can, and you don't even have to be a citizen of Kentucky to attend these, that they're open to anyone who uh, gets on the list and shows up. You know, it reminds me that's something I did want to say, that uh, one of the my coworkers here at UK has been recording presentations at meetings for years, and he has posted every one of those videos on what is now our Kentucky Forage Um, YouTube channel. And you can see free of charge, two hours worth at least of Jim Garrish uh, at a conference we did here. Uh, There are literally thousands of hours of of information about grazing. Uh, And two other things, Peter, I I mentioned really really quickly that I've stumbled on because I like to post pictures on Facebook of of agricultural things. You know that because it, I think agriculture has a beauty all its own. Um, and I have run across two groups on Facebook that are amazing. One is called Hay Kings, H-A-Y, Kings. And if you want to know about a part or a hydraulic hose or this model of that, you know, you can, you can ask the question and you will get opinions. You know, you can sort that out from there. Uh, the other one is called Regenerative Grazing. Uh, and same thing goes. Uh, I don't, I don't agree with everything that's on there, but I certainly have. I can, I can weigh in, and I can put in the university perspective, or ask a question and identify who I am. Um, and it, it is a really rich way to explore um, ideas, to to get your ideas sounded on or or, or responded to by, you know whosoever will start a conversation mm-hmm. indeed um and i'll post links in the show notes to to make it easy for people to find those resources Thank um you. but again i i agree we were talking before we got started about maybe some of the good that could possibly come out of our experience over the last nine or so months is making better use of technology that was already available to us. But we had just been used to doing things in a certain way. You know, we've always had the, and then, you know, fill it in, the the state cattlemen's meeting has always been, you know, and we've always done it this way. Uh, I've come to consider that phrase a very dangerous phrase. We've always done it this way. Um, maybe, maybe for a good reason. Um, but if we don't stop every once in a while and re-examine that, it may not be anymore. Um, so what was it now when we first met, uh, what, what was your master's in at Georgia? Uh, plant physiology. It was under the agronomy department, but I, I spent a lot of time looking at a CO2 analyzer <laughs> yeah um and we're not talking about psychological analysis here we're maybe for you but not for the co i needed i probably needed psychological analysis after that many hours of you know of doing that uh, interestingly enough i did all of my statistics for my master's degree on a ti-55 calculator 
I do. Your, your smartphone probably has a thousand times more computing power than that thing did. Remember punch cards? I do. Um, I do. I do. Um, but so how did you go from plant physiology to forages? What was it about forages that attracted you or what about forages today would you like people to be aware of that maybe would attract someone who's looking for a possible subject to study? You know, I probably will get kicked out of the forage club when I tell you this, but it, I backed into it. Um, I, I love cattle. I love cattle, but I, I don't have the skills. I mean, I worked with people who did, and it was like list, it was like being in a room of people talking a different language, and it was more than the talk. They could see things and knew things I just, you know, I wasn't going to get, and I wanted to be cl as close to it as I could. Uh, and forages was 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 close, and so I, it just kind of started on that path. But over over the, you know, the years, I have developed an extreme appreciation for just how important it is uh, and how ubiquitous they are to things we consider to be just natural and good. They are part of the probably the biggest, well, they're one of the huge CO2 solutions uh, in the world in terms of the, their ability to take carbon dioxide out of the air on every given patch of land, including your window box you know, uh, grasses and other plants. They, we have animals that can turn, uh, you know, basically unusable fiber uh, into T-bone steaks. Uh, and that's an incredible superpower, as you have noted many times before. Um, the, just the art of it, uh, the, you know, the fact that you've got to, you're trying to keep something growing. And at the same time, let the harvester run out there on top of it. Uh, it is it is just it is a, a challenge to to do that, and uh, so I, I so it it has it has become a uh, a love, if you will, uh, of mine to to understand it, to communicate it, uh, and then to also find ways for people to put into practice the things that research says works. Um, I had a colleague tell me years ago when I was a student, well, Ken Evans, and you knew Ken, uh, he said, if you've got an answer and people aren't doing it, you better look at your answer. There's something wrong. And I've been intrigued by that ever since. And I have, if there, if I've ever made any big strides in professionally and helping people, it's because I refuse to just let uh, an unused answer sit on the shelf. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, uh, lots of applications for that wisdom. I, I'd like to point to the reality that we are not going to achieve the sustainable development goals that are set in front of us for the next 30 years without improving on a global basis the productivity and efficiency of ruminant animal agriculture. Um, yes. 
the uh, I was just reading before we got on uh, a subject that I that I don't understand very well, uh, and that that is certainly one of the the subjects that will raise a lot of temperatures in the room, and that's greenhouse gases and cattle. Uh, the so what how do cattle contribute to it how do they compare to other industries and and what does that mean then for the future of uh cattle and you know i i'm beginning to put some of those pieces together but i think it's one of the pieces that we better as as people working in forage crops better figure out and figure out how to articulate that uh in circles where you've got you've got you know honest open-minded people inquiring about how can you do this kind of agriculture because it does blank Mm -hmm. and you know perhaps yes it does blank but did you know and 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 there it goes from there but Mm -hmm. you know again it's always about to me in this stage of my career and i've had a multi-stage career of you know academic administrative and back in the back in the academic and extension world but it's it's you know trying to to learn about the things that we do that sometimes don't make sense or that people question um, and anyway it's it's extremely uh, challenging to the mind to be able to put those pieces together and make them fit make them work do they really fit do they really work together uh, and if so why and what's wrong with my paradigm on and why didn't I think so before uh, I I spent a little time. Digging into the, the the issue of emissions from ruminant animal agriculture, um, trying to think more end to end across from production through consumption, um, we better learn how to answer those because there are people, as you say, they're they're sincerely seeking answers. Um, there are other people who are using misinformation and fear as a way to accomplish their ends and their ends are driven by an end to animal agriculture and and there is that reality and if we don't know how to get the information in front of more people then we're going to be at a disadvantage and and so and and i think that back to circle back to where that what role does the land-grant university have in 21st century America? Um, you know, you've, you've got to, to know where you can go and get an answer where it's not self-serving for the person giving you the answer. Uh, and that is the basis of the land-grant system that we are. We have research-based information, mm. uh, and we're not selling something, mm. at least not for the most part. I mean, we're selling higher education. We're selling you know, we want people to come to college and there's a cost and so on. But yet, on the other hand, I'm, I, I, it's not my job to get people to pay me a subscription. You know, they ask me a question and I'm going to say, here's what the research shows. And, you know, and here's where the research stops and where we don't know anymore. And different, but, different institutions have different policies about engagement with private industry. Um, and, and in, some of the non-land grant universities that gets really muddled and in the land grant universities there's usually some clearer sorts of procedures in place that say if this is going to happen it's the universities it's not yours uh, there's there's some things along that line that 
also differentiate the institutions. Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, on, on uh, the knock against people like me is I don't, uh, I don't uh, wake up in the morning thinking about how do I broadcast, you know, the truth as I know it. Um, and so I'll, you, we, we are passive and we let people come to us. Uh, and that is a flaw that I think we're discovering, but we're, again, most of us are trained to go, to go seek out answers, not to think about how do I package that so that it gets in front of more people. Okay. Interesting. Um, so you're... You've developed quite an interest recent, well, not interest, that's the wrong description, quite an ability as a photographer. How long has that been a thing for you? Or is, I mean, how did you develop that skill that you have and you have an eye, the, the, the images that you post are striking? Of course, you live in the bluegrass region, so you you know, if you lived in New Jersey, that sorry to all our friends at Rutgers, sorry. Um, <laughs> but but hey, how did that get started? I, I my dad probably he handed me a camera when I was thirteen, probably just to get me keep me occupied and not and stop bugging him about something. And so I, you know, it was a roll film camp roll film camera. Shot that first roll of film and I uh, was intrigued. I about that same time, I took a class that taught us how to de how to develop film, how to make a pinhole camera, um, and I was off. And I've been trying to I've been taking pictures ever since. And the digital photography world has just um, been an incredible creative outlet for me because you know you can see it right then. You don't have to worry about going to the dark room or go process the film and um, so I've been doing it since I was 13. So that's, oh my, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that occurs, uh, so your father worked in peanuts, is that right? He did. He was, uh, he was a, a county agent. He was, so I'm in the family business. We both uh, did uh, careers in extension. I'm still working on mine, UK willing. Um, but uh, yeah, he was, he was a peanut agronomist. An agronomist. <laughs> you know, that's one of our words, right? Yes. And we're not going to let anybody else have it. It's ours. <laughs> it's it's a person that cultivates uh, crops and it's the study of crops and soils. And um, so, you know, most of us don't even define it very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we be one. So we are one. That's yeah. right. And and I think that both of us share a sense of of um, giving back. Um, mm. That we were, as you mentioned early, uh, when you were talking about land grant universities. I mean, this was a system um, that enabled a great deal of advancement for people. Um, yeah, I, I'm 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 looking for someone who can t talk about the agricultural history of the United States because. You know, we have we have pre-World War One, and then the disruption that occurred there and in the interwar years. And then you had, during World War II, the continued exodus of people from rural to 
either the service or go work in industry. And after World War II, you had a lot of these people coming back, but they weren't going to go back to the farm, but they, through the GI Bill, were able to attend university and couple their background on the farm with training that they got at all these institutions across the United States. And those institutions built up very large uh, physical plants and, and faculties. And a lot of work was done then in the late 40s, 50s, 60s. And then we begin to see what happens as those people retire and the transition in institutions and the changes. Um, some industries began to move into spaces that extension used to occupy. And so, so we've, we've, we've kind of had that change over time. Um, but this, this sense of being able to, as you said, give information effectively, communicate. The other part that we mentioned earlier is that return channel. And if we could talk about that just a little bit, that role of extension. You know, that, that is just one of my passions. And I, I did not always understand it. I mean, early on, I thought, you know, my job is to be an expert and to go out and, and solve people's problems in a sense. Uh, I was dangerous when I first started because I couldn't solve anybody's problems. Uh, I probably caused as many as I, as, I, as, I, as I helped. But one of the things I learned early on was that you are a lot smarter if you listen a lot more than you talk. Uh, and that is what I think land-grant universities need to do better. And when we have made great advances, it's because we've listened to people and we take that back and we say, okay, Let's work on that. And, I, and it, 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 it's in that same, you know, kind of um, thought or circle as this idea of when we've got an answer and nobody's doing it, you know, then you, you better ask why. We have, a, we have a president here at the University of Kentucky named Eli Capilouto, and he said to us once when we were meeting with him, he said, we asked, what can, you know, what do you need us to be doing? You know, we're a large part. Um, the College of Agriculture here is the largest college in the university and, you know, big, a lot of people working on real things. So what do you need us to do? He said, first of all, I want you to know what you're about. Second of all, I want you to have a way of finding out, is it hitting the mark? And the third way is to find a way to improve so that it is hitting the mark better. And I could not have described it, what we need to do in extension better, but that feedback loop, the listening part is tough. Uh, we, you know, I, I and I've done it. I mean, I've, I've I've called together advisory groups and different capacities as both as a specialist and a, an administrator, and it it is just almost impossible for universities to stop talking. I mean, I'm talking right to me. If you got an advisory group and you don't let them talk. They are not an advisory group. <laughs> you know, they are, they're your audience. So, you know, I told my, my staff that when we have these things, we have to talk half the time and no more. And, and I want to tell you a couple of times when, well, one time in particular for me that, that made a difference. We have been breeding red clover here at University of Kentucky since 
since dirt. I mean, a long time. And we had, we've got some good varieties and, you know, you know, the drill, Pete, you know, you did the variety test, you go out and talk about that. And I had done that to my little group of 20 people in Grayson County. And people are polite listeners and they don't right off the bat come up to you and tell you like the emperor has no clothes, right? But this farmer came up to me and he said, what is it really worth to seed blank, you know, this top variety? And I can get this other thing, you know, basically the budget product for half of that. And, you know, it stumped me because I didn't know. I knew the right answer. Mm-hmm. Don't buy the cheap stuff. Buy the good stuff. Well, yeah, but we went back and we changed the way we did the rest, the variety tests at UK. And we do that's That was like 1993 or before. Uh, and we we do it that we we have we have continued to take bargain brand low end seed and put it in the test with the good stuff and let the chips fall where they may because that's the that's what a consumer is having to to figure out is if I spend more you want me to spend more what's the return and don't tell me you know the difference between Cadillac one and Cadillac two. Tell me the difference between Yugo, or I better not use that one because people don't know what a Yugo is. Um, the cheap thing, you know, the cheapest car you can find, a Ford Fiesta, whatever it is now, you know, the low end car, uh, and the high end one. And is it gonna is it gonna make a difference in my life? And well, yeah, and then there's the there's that psychological difference between the money that comes out of your wallet versus the money that hasn't gone in yet. Yes, and so you yeah. talk to somebody about you could pay five and get twenty, mm-hmm. and they're going to think about the five real right. hard because it's a long time before they get their twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the listening loop, Pete. Back to the point. Uh, the you've got to have that. I mean, it's as important as the research we do, frankly, to me. And and we've spoken before. I don't think it's it's a secret. Uh, the the interest that I have in human nutrition and metabolic health. And it's hard to engage in that conversation when there are other realities at play, such as funding to support. But surely if the institution was hearing more about that from the bottom up, it would be helpful. And, and so uh, I would, I would encourage people, it might be a little something that uh, I may not, maybe I shouldn't do it, but I would encourage people to go into their county offices and ask them for information, um, and, or at least see, or even better, um, if there are registered dietitians or if there are physicians who listen to this, who could offer their assistance and expertise to Extension that would help sort of overcome some of the, the, the inertia against change in that particular area. Uh, and I think my experience with extension is we're always looking for cooperators. Um, so I guess I'll just offer that. Um, and if you want to rebut that idea, you're welcome to it. No, I, I don't. In fact, I was just thinking that 
you, that there is so much that we don't understand, even as much as we have studied dietetics and human nutrition. There's a lot we don't understand about the body's reaction to the food we eat. Um, uh, my wife has discovered that when she doesn't eat gluten, she has a whole lot better life. Well, why is that? You know, uh, you know your experience with uh, low-carb diets has been remarkable. And in fact, um, I, I think that the the well, the language or the the general tone of, of uh, nutrition uh, advice is that if you know, just don't carb carb yourself to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 back. And I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist, so I should be quiet. But I just think that you have to accept the fact that you, that there are things we don't understand well. Um, and in our house, sometimes we have to do it by trying it ourselves. And and in her case, we are literally always saying, well, can I eat this or can I not eat that? You know, what aggravates the rheumatoid arthritis and this this problem or that? Uh, and over time, you know, you find people who understand it better and it helps create a better life for her, for us. Um, but having a questioning uh, and inquiring attitude uh, and an open attitude about things is is important. But I'll say one last thing, Pete, and we can transition. But I think people in my role have got to be conversant on many levels about how agriculture fits into uh, the, the whole world. I was I was on MARTA in Atlanta from the airport to a downtown hotel, and I think I must have had something that said agriculture on it. And this nurse, educated lady, said why is it that we don't we have we don't have non-gmo bread in america you know they don't have gmo bread in europe and they don't have blank problem and i'm thinking i don't know bread's not my thing wheat's not my thing well it turns out we don't there is no gmo bread you know but she didn't know you know she had read something and and i mean this is an educated articulate lady uh, and and yet I was unable to at least offer up a little bit of help to her and reassure her that no, our bread's a whole lot like their bread, and you know perhaps we need to look further at whatever it is you think is going on. Uh, but it it's just this ongoing um, lifelong learning that we need to be about. Yeah. So I I indeed lifelong learning, and and I think that there's lots of evidence that that helps us not with the specific information we learn, but with the benefit of the, the, the discipline and the mental activity, maybe some physical activity involved. I mean, that helps us as we age, which obviously is a subject of tremendous concern for people of our age these days. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, I've been asking you a bunch of questions, and it's only fair, doctor, to give you the chance to turn the tables if you'd like to. Well, yes, because I have been in the academic public world my entire career. I mean, I am risk averse. I do not want risk. I don't want, I do not like uncertainty. Uh, you have made a multifaceted career uh, 
just uh, has and have prospered in it, have 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 gone on through a multifaceted career. But the part I guess I'm intrigued about is the the Berenberg seed, you know, experience that national marketing presence, the that whole thing, you know, and how that interacts. How does how does a company or any company, I guess, uh, inter view the land grant system uh, and you know how's that part how does that partnership work well how did you know just you talk about that for a while sure so um this is my employer who isn't necessary is is not um supporting this sodcast um so right. just just you know, um, just pick a seed company down the road there in Oregon. There are bunches well, of them. Well, I'm happy to talk about Barenbrook, but I just <laughs> wanted to make that clear. Uh, Barenbrook is very much a research-based company, yes. um, and and so a significant investment every year is made in research. And this is a global company, and in fact, the research is actually separate if you look at the org charts from Barenbrook USA. There's sort of a USA research side by side. Um, in terms of cooperating, Barenbrook USA has cooperated with um, universities in some cases, to, to cite an example that you mentioned earlier, we licensed Dr. Taylor's release of Red Clover. Um, and and we've done that with other institutions and other products, um, uh, varieties that are developed and then protected and then released. Uh, so the whole proprietary seed um, market is is a big change over the last couple decades that really marks a transition when once upon a time we had a lot of plant breeders on faculty at the land-grant universities, and now that role has gone in many cases to private industry, which again is a challenge for forages because if we're not talking alfalfa or warm season annual grasses, what's the payoff kind of thing for the industry? Um, we do cooperate in the sense of participating in variety trials. Um, mm -hmm. a, a, an institution will put out a request for entries with a fee um, and define the nature of the trial, and we frequently place varieties in those trials. We also do private research with universities, so we have a contract for people at research stations to do specific trials. Often these are things like early selections, or we have a specific trait that we're trying to, to look at. Um, and then we also uh, cooperate with people in the Ag Research Service branch of USDA who are plant breeders. And so similarly, we have, we, Barenbrug has, uh, I have, uh, I'm not involved in those decisions. Uh, Barenbrug uh, has licensed those varieties as well, just so, um, and also conducted research with people at, at, at those stations. Um, so very much we see the role. Uh, sometimes it can be interesting because sometimes universities license their own varieties and then there's at least the potential for um, the recommender getting a payoff from recommending the university's 
brand, yeah. Well, or even just having pride of authorship, right? That this mm-hmm. this was the variety that I developed, and I'd like to think it's the best one. So, and we're all human, so those things happen, um, and those yeah. are just realities. Um, in terms of getting involved in supporting programs, Barenbrug has over the years been sponsors to various organizations and specific activities. So they see that very much in their um, role as trying to be a leader within the forage um, industry. Uh, one of the, they have a mission statement that includes something about the short, the low yielding grasses uh, turf, uh, but it, the, the important part of it, talks about in increasing animal productivity to help feed the world. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I, one of the things that occurs to me wherever I go, with the possible exception of New Zealand, is look at the countryside going by and go, look at the potential. Uh, and, then, and then we're back to your point about, so what's wrong with my answer? <laughs> that it's not already happening. Uh, that's right. Um, and that's, I mean, it's just intriguing. Uh, but the partnership, the public-private partnership, which is the probably the buzzword of this this era of of higher education right now, uh, when you get it right, it's really synergistic. Uh, and and Bearbrug is a great example of a company. We could name others, but that that does support independent research. I mean, Bearbrug doesn't tell us how to publish. The studies that have Baron Brew products in them, you know, they just get put out there with the rest, and and there you go. And so, um, well, it, it is it is a good partnership, and we've got to figure out how to be better partners. Uh, I mean, in the ag world and every kind, of, every part of the world, to make things to make things work. So maybe uh, there's a few questions that just occurred to me. Um, People may not think of Kentucky as a cattle state. Mm, Um, They may think of it more for horses, but cattle is a big part of the Kentucky economy. It it is, and uh, on this side of the Mississippi, we are the largest cattle state. Now, Georgia and Tennessee give us uh, a a run for our money, uh, and, uh, you know, but on the record, we're the largest cattle state east of the Mississippi. Um, but it, it, it has a lot of impact on a lot of the state uh, in that it is the only ag enterprise that is viable in every single county. Uh, even Jefferson County, Louisville, Kentucky, you know, you can find belted Galloways grazing on, the, you know, the, the just outside of the, the beltway in Jefferson County, Kentucky. Uh, I won't say that that's the best use of that land financially for them, but it certainly is there. Uh, and it is a significant uh, economic driver for the state. Um, and like, like I tried to mention earlier, the aesthetics of Kentucky, you think of Kentucky, you think of grasslands, is, is, is held together, if you will, by, an ind- by well, horses and cattle, both of which need to be on grass as much as they can, uh, and it keeps that land productive and contributes to the to the value of the land, the, the you know, the desire of, uh, I guess, the attractiveness of that land for people to live in Kentucky. So it's, it's a big cattle state. 
Now, this is mostly cow-calf, correct? Cow-calf. Small farms, you know, 30 cows, 150 acres. Um, part-time, part-time farmers, mm -hmm. the majority. So, um, you have something called winter in Kentucky, right? Pasture doesn't grow at the same rate 365 days out of the year. So, no, it doesn't. We wish it, we kind of wish it was, but I wouldn't want to do without winter. Um, the, you know, we, when we're always trying to nibble on the edges of, you know, adding more grazing days early and adding them late. And we have a grass here in Kentucky. Uh, actually, you know, this is almost the center of the world, a universe for tall fescue. Uh, probably Oregon is too, but um, tall fescue grows well here. It's a great wintertime grass. And we can, we can graze on up into the time of the year where people think, man, you can't, you can't be serious, uh, mainly because tall fescue maintains quality then. Uh, but, yeah, we have, we have a struggle, you know, in probably February, March, when we get into the to really heavy winter. Uh, then we get into the thaw and the rain in the springtime, and we have suffered in the wet springs in the last few years. And we've got some, <laughs> we've got some answers that aren't working in yeah. terms of uh, soil conservation uh, and uh, that sort of thing uh, in Kentucky that uh, I think we're still exploring. So what you were talking about, the winter grazing, is where a crop is grown up, say, in the early fall and then rationed out over a period of time, even though there's no more growth, it's standing there like hay, but of higher quality, actually, than hay. Yes. Yes. And it is... It is a, a, a great resource, and, um, you know, we're, as, as simple as that is, and as long as we've known that it's important, we still are refining how, how to do it. Primarily, how to, how to deal with the vagaries of fall weather. Some years we can be just, you know, have lots of rain. Uh, this year, that way, the year before, we were just toast, you know, extremely high temperatures and no rain for like 60 days. Um, but that weather's weather and that it, it is what it is. And if, uh, you know, if it was easy, anybody could do it, I suppose. Well, according to some people who ran for office, it, there's nothing to it. You just dig a hole and throw the seed in and up comes the corn, right? Any, never mind. Um, <laughs> there, there might be a little bit more to it. And, and I think that it's probably human nature to assume things look easier than they probably are. Um, well, and, and that's the remarkable nature of the aptitude of the people that you and I find on farms. Oh, my gosh, the things that they can do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, would, I know I would starve. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just, I'm not that resilient. I, yeah. The two generations ago, the pioneer stock that settled the farm in Oklahoma, mm, I probably didn't get all those genes. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, the, the technology that we maybe could talk about that, that made one of the thing uh, changes possible that we just briefly mentioned is the whole temporary electric fence, which has really given us the opportunity to do things in forage management that just until, at least in this country, what, 40 years ago is probably when it really started coming into uh, awareness. Before that, there were electric fence charges, but they really weren't of the same type 
as what we got from New Zealand. So once again, that technology might even allow us to use the knowledge that we had from earlier and make it actionable and practical. Um, yeah. So interesting. Um, Jimmy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about some subjects that um, I enjoy hearing, and I hope that people listening will have gotten a new perspective and um, know uh, now where to go to get some answers um, the next time that they're looking for information. And, you know, I would say, Pete, thank you so much for asking me. It is a pleasure to, to talk, as always, uh, and, and, and letting me talk about the, the, my most favorite, two of my most favorite subjects, cooperative extension and forage crops. But I would tell anybody that listens to this that hasn't had an experience with their cooperative extension service, and I, I hope that after you do this, it's a good experience. But if you go into an office, local office, find one, go in there uh, and, you know, just ask what are they offering, what classes are going on. And the second thing you can do and, and, and try not to, you know, be shocked when they faint and fall on the floor is to ask, can I be on your advisory committee? because it is the most difficult job in the world to find people who are willing to take the time to be that feedback loop, believe it or not. So, you know, go, go find them, uh, take a dead plant in and say, what killed my plant? That, that were their pros at that, but tell them you want to be on their advisory committee and, and then watch them faint. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you.